HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Let's get real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. It's election night, but I'm going to try not to think about it until I absolutely have to. Uh, so by now, you should be very well, very well aware of what my show is about, right? I mean, you should. You've been listening, I hope, to Let's Get Real for over a year now. You never miss an episode. You've bought all the books and all the show merchandise. You can recite the Let's Get Real Manifesto. I think you can all sing the Let's Get Real Camp song. You've toasted your own genius choice and drunk the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid. But it's the right kind of Kool-Aid. Don't worry. Drunk by, you know, the right kind of people. So don't panic. You made the right decision to join us. You're safe here with us. We know what's best for you. We love you. And drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid will lead to bliss. Yes, yes, yes. I know that's what Jim Jones and David Koresh and Mitt Romney have all told their followers too. But in my case, it's true. Drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid does lead to bliss. The bliss that comes from knowing you're better than people who don't know better. And what's more blissful than that? However, just in case there's a single clueless, unhappy, and unloved person out there who doesn't by now know what Let's Get Real is all about, let's have a little quick review, shall we? Very briefly. It's been a few weeks, so here we go. For the last million or so years, humans have found and foraged and fished and grown and hunted for their food. And in the last 500,000 years or so, we also learned how to cook that food and that made that food more nutritionally available to us. 
We know this. We've been over this before. And everything was okay, except for the occasional case of botulism from your grandma's improperly canned peaches. But, you know, survival. But then, like in the last 50-odd years or so, something really terrible happened to our food. And I don't mean things like Little House on the Prairie going off the air or not being able to slam a phone down on anyone anymore. I mean... A terrible thing in that we changed our natural ways of eating. And instead of finding and foraging and fishing and growing and hunting for our food, humans just started to buy and open and unwrap and squeeze in microwave products that weren't food. They were just made to simulate food. You know what I always say, edible manufactured doppelgangers of food. What I call, come on people, let's all say it together foodiness. Although now when we say foodiness, we have to imagine the little tiny TM on the end because foodiness is trademarked. So watch out. Now we're not talking about plain old junk food like Twinkies or candy or soda or all the completely non-food products we also consume, but the sneaky, deceptive, greenwashed wolf in sheep's clothing, protein bars and garden burgers and smart waters and veggie chips of foodiness and turning our backs on our million year love affair with food and taking our new and exciting but ultimately toxic lover foodiness we've really fucked ourselves up we're sick and fat and dumb and infantilized by foodiness and we've fallen down the foodiness rabbit hole taking a page right out of alice in wonderland and getting stuck at the bottom too chubby and out of shape to see our way to the top where the real food was growing and grazing and swimming and flying not being manufactured in a lab by a flavorologist or somebody like Montgomery Burns. And just when you thought that you had finally gotten a grip on all of this, that you had found your way back out of the rabbit hole, you had finally wised up and listened to me and drank the special drink I made for you and threw out your power bars and your energy drinks and your pre-scrambled egg beaters, it turns out there's another rabbit hole waiting for you to fall into. Like Jessa McClure Jessica McClure in the 80s, only without all that great media coverage. Now, this new foodiness rabbit hole is almost invisible. It can only be seen by a very select few people, but not select, you know, like us, the liberal elite, you know, you and me, who are naturally selected in a Darwinian way because we eat real food and we listen to internet radio and we read the New Yorker and we're smug. No, it's not for us. It can only be seen by a select few because it's so narrow. It's so tiny and only extremely thin, thin, thin people can fit down its tiny chute. Now, people way thinner than me or any of my real food loving peeps, people who in the normal non-foodiness world would be diagnosed or even hospitalized with anorexia or bulimia, but not orthorexia which is what I've self-diagnosed. You can hear about that in my recent episode, Ignorance as Bliss Until You Get Diabetes. No, this is for them. This is the new foodiness rabbit hole, the foodiness rabbit hole that opened up under the sidewalk in Chelsea a few months ago. That's Chelsea in Manhattan. Not like Chelsea Clinton. Um, at the corner of 21st Street and 8th Avenue in Chelsea in New York. And even though the rabbit hole sounds vaguely like a gay club in the 90s version of Chelsea, which used to be all about kind of, you know, the things that Giuliani didn't want to happen anymore. 
it's about as far away from that hedonistic sensory indulged era as you can get. Now, before I take you to the actual site of the new rabbit hole, we need to go back in time again. I know. Another trip in the foodiness time machine is in order. But since you have all those frequent flyer miles saved up from the last one, the big trip that we took in the I Told You show, first year anniversary special of Let's Get Real, you have enough miles to qualify for a free trip. So this one is on us. And we now have a full bar on board the foodiness time machine because Chris, my co-producer, insisted on it because he doesn't like to fly without a drink. So I want to take you back briefly in the machine to the mid-1980s. Now, the mid-1980s was when New York was still kind of pulling itself out of the terrible dark days of the 70s, which was the era where the city went bankrupt and we had blackouts and rioting and looting and Son of Sam and a terrible economy and all around misery. That sounds a lot like actually right now. Well, you know, more things change. We're going to go back to the mid-1980s where we were kind of coming off of all of that. And the city was kind of bouncing back. And we were getting into the like post-disco, new wave, blondie, palladium era. The kind of glam, post-disco 80s. Now, I started college in 1985. Yeah, you can do the math. I hear you all doing the math. And now you know how old I really am. And that's okay because I never had kids. So I actually don't look a decade older than my real age. And I suppose that around that time in 1985, there were, I don't suppose, I know, there were a lot of people making a lot of money in the 80s. They were cashing in on the money-making 1980s. But I was just this dumbass freshman in college who thought I was going to be an artist, and I had, I wouldn't have even known how to make money if I had had the opportunity. And I started my first year of college, and I was living in this building, this so-called dorm for my college, which was not a dorm. It was three floors of the Sloan House YMCA, which used to be on the corner of 34th and 9th, which is a very different place now than it was back then. Now, Sloan House was this building that had been erected to house soldiers and sailors and transients and short-termers after they came home from World War II. But by the 80s, it had become a welfare hotel full of crazies and crackheads and transients and soldiers and sailors from World War II. And there were three floors full of art school students. And we lived in rooms that were six feet by 10 feet wide. Yep, do the math. Six by 10 foot room. Alone, though. And we had to walk about 45 minutes to actually get to classes. And we all had to share one payphone on the floor to make phone calls because this was 1985, and we all typed our papers on typewriters. Well, a couple of people actually had early Macs, but I didn't even have a typewriter. And I had to go to the library to use the typewriter at the library. Now, for my under 30 audience, if you don't know what a library is, you can Google that. And the place was a total shithouse dump. And a few years later, in the real estate boom of the 90s, the building was sold to a developer who has thus turned it into luxury apartments. I'm sure they're a little bigger than 6 by 10. And the college that I went to spent a lot of money and built a nice, big, shiny new dorm building right next to the school. And I missed out on all of that because timing is a bitch, but so am I sometimes. So we can relate very well. Anyway, it was a much simpler time. I like to say the 90s were a simpler time, but in terms of technology, the 80s were a really simple time. There were no smartphones There weren't even any dumb phones except the dumb payphone 
down the hall that we all had to share. No Twitter, no blogs. I wouldn't even hear the word internet until the mid, early mid 90s, I think like in 92. And for my under 30 demographic, again, let me paint a picture for you. It was a time in which defriending someone meant slamming the phone down on them. It was a time in which you still could slam a phone down on someone. It was a time in which if you had any personal thoughts, you wrote them in your journal, which was a private notebook that only you read. It was like Facebook, but in print and only you could read it. And there was no one to like or dislike what you wrote. Now, one Sunday, my first year of college, when I was living at Sloan House, my father decided to come into the city one day and take me out to breakfast. So he drove in, I got in his car, and we started driving down 7th Avenue through Chelsea. And I guess we could have gone into the West Village and found some cute little West Village-y place for brunch, but we just drove up and down the avenues of Chelsea thinking we would find something there. Now, Chelsea at the time was a neighborhood filled with old tenement buildings and housing projects. None of the luxury housing is that's there today was there in the 80s. And most of those buildings were inhabited by Cubans and other Latinos and intrepid gay men who had moved to Chelsea from the village. It was like the new frontier from the village. And there wasn't much of a food scene or really any food scene at all. The food scene in New York at the time was really more centered on Midtown and Soho. Chelsea wasn't a place for food yet. It had a lot of good Cuban food and Cuban Chinese and cheap Chinese. And I used to eat a lot of Cuban Chinese food in that neighborhood when I lived there a few years later. But we wound up just eating eggs or pancakes or something at this dumpy old diner in Chelsea called the Wellington, which was on 7th and 21st, I think. For lack of anything better, because there really wasn't anything better or at least anything new or creative or cute or charming. That would come along in a few years. Neighborhoods in New York City change. They evolve all the time over time. Demographics shift. Places become trendy. Neighborhoods where 20 or 30 years ago, you never thought you'd be see bearded hipsters or 40-year-old men on skateboards or stroller-pushing, texting nannies or teeming with them. Now, would you have ever thought I'd be sitting here in industrial Bushwick doing a radio show? I don't think so. So the reason I'm taking you on this time machine trip back to 80s Chelsea is to show you just that, how neighborhoods evolve. And along with them, the food that the neighbors in those hoods eat evolves and how that food reflects the culture and the zeitgeist of that place and how the almost invisible new foodiness rabbit hole came to be under the corner of 21st Street and 8th Avenue. See, it all comes back around. Now, that corner used to be occupied from 1938 until 2007 by a luncheonette called the Bright Food Shop. In one incarnation or another, it was Bright Food Shop. Now, according to Jeremiah Moss, who runs the amazing website Vanishing New York, there's been a restaurant on that corner since at least 1907. And Bright Food Shop was a, like a kind of lunch counter, luncheonette place, up until somewhere in the mid-70s when the original owners closed it because the neighborhood got too violent. It's hard to believe now in bazillion-dollar Chelsea, but there was a time when people were moving out of the city because it wasn't livable. 
And the place was most likely shuttered until the 80s when those gay men started moving into Chelsea and gentrifying it. And then it was resurrected as this very kind of cozy, interesting, locally owned Mexican restaurant attached to a little store called Kitchen Market, which also sold amazing real food and all sorts of Mexican imported products. Now, the couple who ran it kept it going until 2007. And then, of course, the corporate greed real estate monster raised the rents too high and they had to shut it down. And it was really too bad because I remember eating there and they had great food and kind of really interesting takes on on traditional Mexican, but also like vegetarian and salads. And it was really good. And it had the beautiful old interior with tin ceilings and this great vintage neon sign from the 30s. You know, it was just real and it was a good place. And in fact, when Chris was writing his self-help books mm-hmm, in the 90s mm-hmm, and falling down the foodiness rabbit hole of protein bars and garden burgers, which he used to live on, he also used to get takeout from Bright Food Shop regularly, where the counter help knew his order, and he would like me to add, occasionally tried to get him into bed. And after Bright Food Shop closed, it stood empty for a few years until a Qdoba moved in. Qdoba, the third-tier Mexican chain that sort of tries to be like Chipotle, but fails miserably, and it was all like... Nasty, fakey beans and faux guacamole and Snapple iced teas. And nobody behind the counter even trying to get anyone into bed because they were all too, like, fat and stupid and disinterested in their lives to even think about it. And they, Qdoba came in and they gutted the space and they ripped out all the old stuff and the patina and they put in their awful faux Mexican terracotta tile and they totally sterilized it and they killed the magic of it and they opened up their stupid chain and then they promptly went out of business because they didn't pay their taxes or their rent. Now, if a corporate chain like Qdoba can't afford commercial rent in New York anymore, then I don't even know what to say there. I was certainly not sad to see them go, but to rape the space like that and then to just leave it totally stripped of its old glory made me sick. Replacing Bright Food Shop and Kitchen Market with Qdoba is like Lindsay Lohan playing Elizabeth Taylor in a biopic, which she is. So Qdoba failed, and they must have been in really deep shit because they left so fast that they left all their paper goods scattered around on the floor. And unlike when Kitchen Market closed, there was no neighborhood uprising and letters to the owners pleading them to come back because nobody gave a shit when Qdoba closed because no one cares about a chain like that. And so the space stood empty again. And after about a year, the space was gutted one more time. And out went the Home Depot brown tile and earth tones and faux Mexican. And in came blinding white walls with orange highlight paint and steel shelves, open refrigerator cases and blinding white fluorescent light. And I thought... What could it be, this sterile, well-lit, open refrigerator shelved kind of space? And so Chris and I had been talking about this, and we were wondering it as we walked up and down his block on our way to get a cocktail at Rawhide, the legendary gay bar across the way, that has been on the same corner since 1978, having survived AIDS and Giuliani on September 11th, and now mommies and tourists in Chelsea. Now, we didn't actually go there for a drink, but... What was coming next onto that corner was enough to actually make us go into Rawhide and drink. 
And then it did happen. The almost invisible new foodiness rabbit hole opened up right under our feet, right under the sidewalk, and began siphoning in the customers of the brand spanking new blinding orange-white fluorescent Stanley Kubrick's worst nightmare design, Organic Avenue. Not familiar with this latest trendlet to hit the upwardly mobile mommy starvation crowd? Well, let me fill you in so that you don't trip and fall into it too. And unlike Jessica McClure, if you do fall into this particular foodiness rabbit hole, the whole world would not be watching and trying to get you out and giving you amazing press coverage because they're down their own foodiness rabbit hole. So consider this episode of Let's Get Real to be a line of do not cross Let's Get Real police tape around Organic Avenue keeping you out. Now, Organic Avenues are this chainlet, I suppose, and they're in all the usual predictable New York City spots, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, West Village. Chelsea? Really? In Chelsea? Suddenly, Chelsea isn't just aging queens and Cubans. Chelsea is a legit neighborhood for families. Nice, white, affluent families who maybe like the edginess of the place, the proximity to the High Line and Chelsea Market and the former meatpacking district now that it's clothes and stores and bars not putrefying goat carcasses and transvestite hookers and artists chelsea is now full of mommies and strollers and nannies and straight frat boys and it's driving chris crazy now i moved out of chelsea and into brooklyn in 1994 just when a lot of the kind of good stuff was starting to open there after sloan house I lived in the East Village, then I lived in Chelsea, then I moved to Brooklyn. I used to go to a gym in Chelsea on 16th and 8th where there were days where I would be the only woman there, except for sometimes Sandra Bernhard. Chelsea was a total gay mecca in the 90s. It was full of bars and clubs and porn stores and restaurants, and it was all about the scene. Now, Chris gets all teary when he laments the end of that era, so when we stood on that corner and we saw that Organic Avenue had opened on his corner... We knew the true apocalypse had arrived. It also made me realize that it was no wonder that I spent most of the 90s single because I was literally barking up the wrong trees in that neighborhood. But I still loved Chelsea. But it's no longer Chelsea. It was, it's now what Chris calls Hellsea. And Organic Avenue is the new inner circle of that hell. So let me tell you what they sell. Organic Avenue is a store that sells little tiny bottles of juice. Yeah, little tiny bottles of juice. Tiny, tiny juice. Like what kids take in their lunch boxes. Little bottles of juice. But these little bottles of juice are $9 a piece. Mm-hmm. They also sell water, too. And then they also sell some stuff that they call food. But I'm highly suspicious of that. We're going to get to more of that in a moment. The stores themselves are, like I said, kind of super shiny white and bright, bright orange with very bright lighting and a totally sterile atmosphere. Something between an operating room, a futuristic fashion studio, and a scene from 2001. Not exactly a place you'd expect to find food, 
Now, we haven't done the test, which is where we bring Chris's dog into a store to see how he reacts. If you recall, we brought him once into a vitamin shop or a GNC, and he went to sleep instead of begging for treats because he couldn't smell any actual food in the store. It's hard to imagine this dog wagging his tail and giving his paw to try to get a nibble of the raw vegan chocolate mousse cleanse drink that I will describe shortly. Now, the variety of products at Organic Avenue was pretty small. They, the food case container only, they probably had about six or seven things and maybe 10 different juice products. And there just isn't that much stuff in there, which is also what's so weird about it. It's so sort of highly curated. And the food that they had is all vegan and all raw versions of other foods. So they had things like raw vegan lasagna and raw vegan chocolate mousse. I, I'm not making this up. You know, I, I embellish, but I'm not embellishing this because their raw vegan chocolate mousse is a real thing. Now, in my world, the real food world, if you need to put two modifiers in front of the name of the food, it's not that same thing anymore. It's like Peacekeeper Missile. Remember that? Chocolate mousse, by definition, commands cooking and dairy products. You can't say it's chocolate mousse if it's raw and vegan. It doesn't work. The same for the raw vegan lasagna or the raw vegan pizza or the raw vegan bagel with vegan cream cheese that they sell. And all of it comes pre-portioned in little tiny plastic boxes, in little tiny portions. And I guess it's because it all tastes so bad that nobody would want to eat more than that. I mean, after all, nobody is sitting around waiting for the end of the world to come chowing down on raw vegan lasagna. Now, for me, this gets right to the real point. Organic Avenue is not a place that's really about eating or food or nutrition, even though that's what they claim they're about. What they're really about is control, as in, I am totally in control of my body. I buy portion-controlled, raw, vegan, doppelganger foods made by someone else so that I can remove myself completely from the process of buying and preparing and cooking for myself so I don't have to get my hands dirty while my $5 an hour nanny changes my triplets diapers and I can tweet about what a good mom I am. I know that ultimately I have to ingest some calories to survive, but this way I don't have to do any work to get them. And when you buy food and juice at Organic Avenue, they give you this cute orange tote bag, which apparently is now the hottest accessory around, and it's got the word love written all over it. It's, it's Orwellian. It's totally doublespeak. I mean, let's get real. If someone who allegedly loves you brought you two ounces of raw vegan lasagna to eat while you're getting over a bad breakup, you'd seriously question how much love is actually going on because maybe they actually want to starve you to death because they stole your boyfriend and want you to go away. The only part that isn't Orwellian is the logo that they use of a circle over a straight line over an A without the bar in the middle, which Chris pointed out looks like a starving stick figure. So that part is honest. But, you know, the Nazis had a really good logo, too, and they were also kind of about starvation also. 
Now let's get to the staff at Organic Avenue. Long gone are the lovely, lovely people of the Bright Food Shop. A staff of humans who knew your order and tried to get you to meet them after work. Organic Avenue is staffed with skeletal, genderless robots with crazy eyes and manic smiles asking you if you need help while you try to wrap your brain around the idea of a raw vegan Cinnabon. And I'm thinking that there's something almost very, like, Catholic about it or Christian. It's like this total denial of the body and bodily functions. Only this time, it's not about sex or masturbation or carnal appetites or pooping. It's about control over our actual appetites. It's putting your physical needs into the hands of a corporation. Whether you think Organic Avenue is a corporation or not, and letting them dictate what you ingest because you can't or you won't trust yourself enough with those choices. I mean, look how well it's actually worked for the church for these past 2,000 years or so, having people put total trust and faith into them to make choices for them. And anyway, the people who shop at Organic Avenue or even the raw food vegans in general are probably so malnourished and weak that they lose their desire for sex altogether. So they need to save up all their energy for chewing all that raw plant fiber and swallowing all that juice. And being that skinny is not sexy. I mean, didn't we get over that? Didn't we learn from Kate Moss and Callista Flockhart? I mean, they're about as sexy as the their 300-pound potato people 7-Eleven shopping analogs who are sucking down their 40-ounce big gulps and their Subway sandwiches and their cupcakes all day. Both extremes are about denial. Denial of true bodily needs, denial of emotions, denial of self-love, for different reasons, to different extreme results. And this is the other interesting parallel that stick-thin organic avenue eaters and 400-pound Dunkin' Donut eaters both ultimately wind up androgynous amorphously non-gender specific characters on the American landscape like Pat from Saturday Night Live in the 90s but super skinny and humorless with really bad taste. So let me break it down for you. 7-Eleven is fast food for potato people. Organic Avenue is fast food for vegans. As they say in Thailand, same, same. Both make themselves androgynous and sexless, which maybe is good because that way they won't reproduce. I mean, being underweight messes with your fertility the same way being overweight does. And if you look around the city, you could see we could stand a few less babies, especially in Chelsea. It's the raw vegan parallel to my show that I did where I talked about how you can't have your cheesecake flavored yogurt and eat it too. The show I did about how everything is being flavored to be something else. There's no difference between chemically flavoring yogurt to taste like red velvet cake, which in itself is the taste of chemicals, when red velvet cake is an actual thing, not a flavor. So calling a stack of raw Swiss chard leaves with raw tomato puree and cashew paste smeared on them, lasagna, is beyond foodiness or truthiness or doublespeak. It's the new rabbit hole for socially acceptable, even socially sanctioned and admired anorexia. It's retail 
starvation for skeletal suckers. With a cute orange tote bag to show that you've joined the cult and that it all has somehow something to do with love. It's a cult of suckers. Now, foodiness is for chumps, but Organic Avenue is for suckers. Literally, because most of what they sell is juice, which requires no teeth, which is good because one of the first symptoms of malnutrition after you become a size zero is that your teeth start to fall out. But that's even better, right? Because if your teeth fall out, then you really can't eat, and then you could get yourself down to a size double zero. The new rabbit hole only fits people smaller than a size two, or a size four from H&M. The rest of you, human potatoes, including me, we are shit out of luck. You can only peer down into it with me and with Chris from the sidewalk while we drink whole milk cappuccinos and dirty martinis. And those little tiny bottles of juice, they're 16 ounces and they're $9. That's more than a good pint of a craft beer. I mean, that's the price of almost two beers at happy hour at my pub, only... You don't get any buzz. Now, I don't care if that juice was squeezed out of the ass of the last living endangered wild orange in New Guinea by the world's smallest pygmy. It's still juice. It may be organic, but it's still just juice. And what's juice? Sugar and water. Kind of like soda or sports drinks or vitamin water. And Organic Avenue, speaking of sports drinks and vitamin water, also really pushes their cleanse programs. You know about cleanses, right? The latest, also in socially sanctioned anorexic behavior. You claim to be doing it for health reasons, to clear your system of toxins, to shed your bad karma, to clear your head and get rid of your pesky baby weight. Unless, of course, you hired a surrogate. Well, for $199, you can get your cleanse delivered in tiny bottles right to your front door, which you'll need because you'll be too weak to leave your apartment after living on tiny bottles of juice for a week. Now, does New York City, the home of the savviest, smartest people in the world, a mecca for the cultural and intellectual elite, need a store that sells little bottles of juice and raw vegan doppelganger food? Aren't we smarter than this? Haven't we evolved beyond the gimmicky liquid diet fads of the past, can't we just all move on to real food now? What are we trying to cleanse ourselves of anyway? Guilt? Sin? Adderall? Well, we can, but apparently those stroller-pushing, venti-soy-skinny-latte-swilling, texting-and-traffic mommies can't. They're too evolved. They've moved beyond food and impregnation through intercourse. Because that's what this is. It's the newest form of food-based elitism. It's competitive under-eating. Let's see who can survive on the strictest, most draconian cleanse program. Who can make it six weeks on water and cayenne pepper? You? Me? Her? Whoever wins takes the title of most evolved, has the most self-control, the most iron will, is so spiritually developed and free of neuroses that she's crowned the queen of Organic Avenue and the winner, and this is New York. So even though it doesn't really look like it anymore, especially in Chelsea, it's still 
New York. And in New York, winning is everything. So Chris and I decided that in order to write this show, we actually needed to go to Organic Avenue for a fact-finding mission. So I met him on the corner outside of the store a couple weeks ago before Sandy. And we tried to psych ourselves up to go in. Now, Chris had already done his own pre-visitation psych-up, which was downing a half a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. Along with Svetka and Percocet, that makes the new Chelsea bearable for him, or at least it keeps him from committing mass murder, suicide. So we stood on the, ha- on the corner for about a good half an hour because we just couldn't take it. We couldn't stand the idea of going in. But eventually we pulled it together to go in. Because, you know, becoming the John Stewart of food, I mean, helping you all see through all this foodiness propaganda is what drives us and motivates us to do things we wouldn't normally do. This was purely in the name of research. So we entered and instantly got freaked out by what we experienced. It wasn't the products so much, although as I've described, the food, in quotes, was beyond comprehension. It wasn't even the blaring orange or the word love printed everywhere or the starving stick figure logo it was the culture of the place the hungry looking androgynous creatures who work there compulsively asking if we needed help smiling maniacally they were like mormon missionaries samples of some kind of green juice puree were on offer and i automatically reached for one as you do when preferred a sample But then my cult alarm started instantly ringing and I snatched my hand back in fear of ingesting mind-controlling juice drugs. And after a couple of minutes of this, a man, I think, I think it was a man, came up to us smiling like the cat who ate the raw vegan canary. And he sidled up to us and he said, do you want to hear the best thing that happened to me today? Now, I instinctively said no. But Chris, who was a journalist and knew we'd probably hear something that would be good in the show, said, yeah. Given that this guy was gay, he thought that maybe Meg Ryan had come in the store and he could hear about her botched face. So this clerk, she-male, with his or her eyes shining wildly, said, I found out today that the sun-dried tomato product we sell has the most fiber of anything in the store, including the kale juice, looking as ecstatic as Christ did as they drove that last nail into his hand. Now, I didn't make that up. This guy really came up to us and said this. So I just started backing away because I was afraid that he would infect me just by being too close. And Chris followed and we made our hasty escape. And all I could think about were the various religious zealots and cult members I'd encountered over the years. Like the ones who come up to you on the street and say, excuse me, have you heard the good news? Or things like, the dear leader will provide for you in between controlling the weather and winning the Nobel Prize. Or things like, I never said I would dismantle FEMA. Now, this was way too much like that for me. So I got out of there fast. And after recovering, we discussed how Organic Avenue equates tiny bottles of juice and starvation and raw vegan Cinnabons with love. Now, if I were love or even love's publicist, I'd be pretty mad that they're using my name in vain. There's nothing of love in that store. What I did feel from that store was the makings of an awfully big carbon footprint, what with all the plastic and tiny boxes and lighting and open refrigeration and shipping that they do. It was like a chain store, but with no moral compass or environmental conscience, but allowing liberal elites to feel righteous in their starvation. And that's what really struck me 
ultimately and struck me hard was how what the place actually felt like to me was a 7-Eleven. Same lighting, same open refrigerated shelves, same bottles of pretty colored liquids and unappealing looking food in plastic boxes. In fact, they use almost the same color scheme as 7-Eleven, bright orange and green. And if you look at the logos, they're actually pretty similar. Now, 7-Eleven plans to open 100 new stores in New York in this year. And Organic Avenue seems to be following. And if you think about it, they're really kind of the same store. Organic Avenue is 7-Eleven for wealthy people with eating disorders. The same infantilized needs for the constant sippy cup. The same refusal to take charge of procuring and cooking your own food. It's the same thing. It's scary. Only the salespeople at Organic Avenue were a lot more animated than your average 7-Eleven. Organic Avenue even sells coffee in tiny plastic bottles for $9. There was no smell of actual food in the store. No cooking aromas, no ripening, no freshness, no life. The whole place felt dead, which is ironic because they claimed to be all about life and love and freshness. There was no soul, only zombies. And in the days leading up to the big storm, when everyone was running around frantically shopping for food to get them through, afraid of the apocalypse... Organic Avenue was empty. Nobody wants raw vegan bagels with raw vegan cream cheese and kale juice in an emergency. It's funny how when the survival instinct is actually tapped into, the truth really comes out. Now across the street, literally diagonally across the street from Organic Avenue is a store called Forager's Market which is about as total an antithesis to Organic Avenue as you could create if you did it in a Marketing 101 class. Foragers almost only sells local products like produce and eggs and meat and cheese, and they have a huge display of real produce covered in dirt straight from the farm, actual vegetables, like real vegetables from the farm, not vegan stuff in little plastic boxes. Now, it's also... Very expensive, but it's an excellent store, and they sell really good food, including eggs from their own farm. It's also an extreme for a small portion of the population, but it's the other extreme from Organic Avenue or from 7-Eleven. It's sort of the triangulation of the food world in New York. The extreme extreme taken to an extreme. And New York has always been about extremes, except when it's not, which it's becoming now, which is more like corporate mediocrity. And that's what's happening everywhere. And that's what makes this little corner of Chelsea so interesting. And that's why I wanted to take you on this little trip today. To go from Bright Food Shop, in all its incarnations since the 30s, luncheonette counter, and on the former corner of Gay Sex and Drugs Avenue, as Chris points out, to Neo-Mexican, to Qdoba, to Organic Avenue on one corner, and Foragers which is in the lobby of what used to be the Atherton Hotel, which is a SRO and crack den turned luxury high rise, but now a precious dispensary of pastured eggs and organic beets and local honey for $20 for four ounces. And in the middle of all of it, another 7-Eleven opens. So as we try to begin to clean up this mess left by Sandy and face the facts tonight in this election, let's try to keep in mind what really matters. Real food matters. Buying real food from real people who care enough to sell it matters. Listening to Let's Get Real matters a lot. 
So I want you to keep drinking that special Let's Get Real juice as we bring the foodiness time machine back down into our parking spot. Be careful getting off. Watch your step. Your bags may have shifted in transit. Don't let your juice spill on the carpet. We just had it replaced. And remember that that juice will cleanse you of all the Kool-Aid in your life, whether it's the Organic Avenue Kool-Aid or the 7-Eleven Kool-Aid. Just one little thing you have to keep in mind. You have to keep drinking the Let's Get Real Kool-Aid for it to start to work. So if you don't want to eat shit and you don't want to fall down the newly discovered super skinny rabbit hole of foodiness, then as soon as you get your internet service and your power back on and you finally take a shower and you finally get back to work, keep listening and tune into next week's Let's Get Real, where we talk about what foodiness has done to wine. Have a good week. We'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. listening.